Okay, three boys, aged 13, 15, and 16. All three chose to appear with fake names on this radio program. And the fake names they chose? Ready? K-Rad, Mr. Juarez, and Fred. Those first two names come out of the world of computer hacking and software piracy. That's Mr. Juarez, that's Juarez as in wares, as in softwares, as in illegal softwares, pirated softwares. And as for Fred? Why Fred? For no reason, man. There's got to be someone else named Fred out there. Anonymity was important, given the kinds of things we were discussing. Namely, credit card fraud, computer hacking, and the nature of hell. Well, from WBEZ in Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today on our program, How Bad is Bad Enough to Count? Act 1, How Bad is Stealing $800? Act 2, a little radio experiment we're all going to put on the lab coats and the protective goggles and hope you do the same. Act 3, How Bad is This Relationship? Act 4, How Bad is This Movie? We teach you a simple home test that anybody can do to determine if a movie is actually good or actually bad. Act 5, Creating Your Own Moral Code. The story of a teenager with the power to shut down your phone line or anyone else's and how he decided to wield his power. Stay with us. Act one. So K-Red, Mr. Juarez, and Fred were trying to be criminals, but they were not too successful at it. They were in New York for a hacker's convention. Between sessions, I followed them to lunch at a McDonald's on Times Square. At first, Fred was going to pay for Mr. Juarez and K-Rad. What do you guys want? Um, um, I want a number one meal. But Fred wasn't used to the downtown prices. Oh my God, it's five bucks, man. Uh, you guys are chipping in. I can't pay for this. Sure. Uh, I think it's safe to say that one sign that your criminal career is not going as well as you might want it to is if you have to worry about the prices at McDonald's. But K-Rad, Mr. Juarez, and Fred were involved in very low-level types of crimes. All the crimes involved computers. They pirated software. They scammed free CD-ROM games. They cheated one of the big online computer services out of a few hundred dollars in online time. All in all, they didn't steal very much, and they didn't steal very effectively, but stealing was the idea. Here's a typical one of their scams. They called people at random and tried to get a calling card number or a credit card number out of them. Basically, the way it works is this. You call up somebody... You say, this is the AT&T operator, you know, and you have the whole point is you have to sound like you're not calling somebody up with the intention of getting them. You have to sound like you've been sitting in this chair for 10 hours and you want to go home. So you got to go, you know, this is the AT&T operator, I have a click call for Paul. Will you accept charges, sir? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll accept charges. Right, hold on one second. And you tap on the keyboard. You say, I'm sorry, you seem to have a restriction on your phone line. You can't accept collect calls to this line. And, th- and then they yell and they go, what do you mean I can't accept collect calls to my line? I've been getting collect calls to this line for 20 years. And then you got to go, sir, there's nothing I can do about it. My computer says you can't receive a collect call on this line. Would you like to try an alternate billing method? And then they go, what do you mean alternate billing method? Well, you can bill it to your calling card or a major credit card, in which case they'll proceed to either give you a calling card or a major credit card. And that, of course, is the idea behind the whole thing, to end up with a calling card number or a credit card number that they can use themselves. And as you may suspect by now, there's just one problem 
with this little scam. That is, it doesn't work. Well, the reason it doesn't work is because a lot of people we had to start yelling and saying, what do you mean you can't bill it to my line? I want to... There's a lot of mad people. Then they'll just say, oh, this is too much trouble. Forget it. I won't accept the collect call. The other scams these guys run don't do much better. They tried to hack their way into the mainframe system of a big computer retailer, but were caught and stopped before they got very far. They are such unaccomplished computer hackers that Fred himself was actually the victim of a hacker. Twice. Somebody broke into his account on one computer bulletin board and then used his account and his electronic mail to visit some of the nether regions of the net. Remember, you were, you talked to the guy on IRC. There's this right, weird guy. Right. This guy was going on all these sex channels and like he was like wrecking my name and stuff. It's awful. You can't get pissed at him. I wouldn't get pissed at him because that would be entirely hypocritical. I've said that if anybody ever steals one of my credit cards or ever you know hacks into my account or computer system, I will not care and I will be perfectly allowable to that. Yeah, you know, mean, to go and say, I can't believe it, somebody took my credit card. Yeah, well, I, mean, I wouldn't So what like if that. I did it to everyone else? I, I'm perfectly willing yeah. to let someone do that to me. Over the summer was when they really started to get serious. Mostly it was what they call carding, getting other people's credit card numbers and then buying stuff on their credit cards. They met this adult who knew all about carding and who showed them some tricks. K-Rad and Fred ordered $1,600 in computer merchandise on somebody else's credit card had it delivered to a neutral address, picked it up, sold half of the stuff for cash, kept the rest. Now, one thing that's peculiar about this story is that these are rich kids. K-Red and Fred live in a wealthy upstate community. They attend one of the most expensive, prestigious private schools in the country. But they steal. Fred believes he has no choice. He wanted to get all the things the other kids at private school had. A microwave, a stereo. He just wanted to be the same as everybody else. A skinny, young-looking 15 he is perpetually strapped for cash. He said his parents could not help him much with money right now because they'd just gone a half million dollars in debt buying a house. At one point, to get some cash, he sold the computer his parents had given him for school without ever telling them. He wanted to replace the computer as quickly as possible with the help of a stranger's credit card. I'm also pretty good at shoplifting, but my whole, my whole thing on that is that like, I will not steal anything if I have the money for it. Because, you know, and a lot of times, like, the store at my school, like the grill, like I steal from that a lot, but like I also like give them $10 for no reason if they have the money because like I feel bad about what I've stolen. And like if I ever get the money so I don't have to do this anymore, then I'm not going to do it. What's most striking about this is how Fred and the other boys, I think, really want to convince themselves that they are good, that they really do not harm anybody with what they're doing. Or if it does harm someone, what they're doing, there's the reassuring thought that Someday, somehow, they might make it up to the injured party. As, as noble as this sounds, if I ever, this is one thing that I absolutely guarantee that sounds like the biggest load of crap anyone could ever say, but if I am ever we in a financial... In no, no one should believe me. This is like the biggest, you know, I'm really good inside. If I ever find myself, and I've made this vow to myself, in a good enough financial situation, I will repay everything I have ever done now. I mean, if I find myself making $2 million a year, I will send a $10,000 check to the company which I stole, you know, calling, calling cards from. Or, you know, I, I, that is something I definitely want to do if I am in a financial situation to do it. K-Red believes that the $1,600 they charged to a stranger's Visa card was a victimless crime, that the credit card owner would call Visa and have the charge removed from his bill, 
And the visa figures a certain amount of fraud is just the cost of doing business. One thing that I've always said in all of my doings is that I will never, ever do something that will severely hurt an individual person. Okay? So, for example, if it involves, I would never mug someone, I would never, you know, beat someone up for money, I'd never shoplift. Well, maybe, I, no, I wouldn't shoplift because that's hurting, that is hurting an individual person. I'm just going to stop the tape right here. This is just this amazing moment that I love captured on tape. He is struggling over this so much that you could actually hear him figure out his position on this as he speaks. Let me play this for you again. I'd never shoplift. Well, maybe, I, no, I wouldn't shoplift because that's hurting, that is hurting an individual person. We headed out of the McDonald's and back to the hotel where the computer hackers convention was taking place. Without any prompting from me, Fred started talking again about this notion that he was only stealing because he absolutely had to. You know, I go to boarding school and I don't have that much like, like I don't have any money or anything, you know, and I get like really hungry and stuff. I have a fast metabolism and like, I, like seriously, I starve and I lost like 10 pounds in one week and that's not good for someone who's like really skinny like I am, so... You know, and then a lot of it is just stuff I want, you know. And yeah, I just really want to stress that, you know, we're not bad. We're not like, in other ways, we're not bad people. And we don't like go around trying to screw off people in any way we can. Because we're not at all. I mean, like, you know, I do social work. I like, you know, tutored kids. I like do a lot of stuff which isn't like necessarily evil and like more good. But, you know, sometimes it's just like. I don't know, man. I like doing it. <laughs> I can't explain it. Well, talk about that part of it. Like, what is the thrill of doing it? That's the first... That, that was the reason I started carding. The, the reason was the thrill of, like, you know, going... We went in there. It was real... Like, it was, like, mission impossible. We, like, we went in. We had gloves on and stuff. And we, like, picked it up. We had, like... We had it all worked out. We were, like, connected. We had, like, lookouts and stuff. And it's just it's a lot of fun. It's, like... It's like, you know, you're doing stuff that it's not exactly legal and not legal at all, <laughs> and it's fun. By this point, we were back in the hotel lobby. We took the elevators up to the hackers' convention. K-Red said that real hackers don't do what he and Fred had done. Real hackers don't use their skills for personal gain. They don't steal credit card numbers. They don't defraud people. Real hackers, he said, break into computers just to see if they can do it. We moved to a corner of the hallway where we wouldn't be overheard by the real hackers. K-Red said that they had never really talked with anybody about their illegal activities this much, ever, before. The most thing I'm worried about is I'm actually starting to, for the first time, to say this all out loud, everything I've done, and suddenly it doesn't sound as, as hacker much anymore. And I've known that ever since I moved into move, doing maybe some credit card thing. And that's why I'm, in fact, even considering giving up on doing all the carding and stuff like that, which is, I, seriously, I am. Fred shot him a look. If he were serious and they did quit carding, Fred would never get a computer to replace his old one. What about my computer? What? Your computer will come Jesus first. Jesus Christ, man. I want to get a gun and shoot right, you. A- after your computer. The thing about a bad conscience is that it splits you in half. Fred said that he had two different modes. That was the word he used, modes. Sometimes he would think about what he and K-Rad were doing, and he knew it was wrong. But mostly, he tried not to think about it. I try to limit that as much as possible because I generally feel crappy when I do that. And the rest of the time, I try to forget that I do that and, like, you know, just carry on with my basic life, you know? And a lot of times, to think about it, my worst fear is that I'm going to end up going to hell for doing this, and that's, like, my worst fear. Do you believe in hell? Yeah. 
I do. And you think you can go to hell for getting a computer on somebody else's credit card? I don't know. I hope not. I really hope not. I just, it's always been my biggest fear. That's why I'm afraid of dying. You know, afraid of, like, there's something I've done which just is, like, the fucking straw on the camel's back. That's going to be what's going to do it. Well, like, how big is this worry? Like, would this, would this keep you up at night? Yeah, maybe for a couple minutes. And then I just, like, sort of put it out of my mind, you know? His share of the carding profits was $800. I told him that from an adult's perspective, it did not seem like a lot of money. I didn't think you could do eternity in hell for just 800 bucks. And as soon as I said this, I regretted it. Fred's body language changed completely. It was just this, um, this moment. It was like I was calling him a little kid, saying he was ridiculous to worry about something so small. And um, he was offended and got quieter and just withdrew. Then Mr. Juarez spoke up. He said that maybe by adult standards this wasn't much money. But to them, it was a lot of money. It was plenty enough to count. When is hell a possibility? Whenever you think it is, it is. More on this when our program continues. Going to hell and who cares? My subject tonight set forth the fact that there are people who are going to hell. And my subject for the show that there are people that don't care who goes to hell. People go to hell for not doing as well as doing. Jesus said, when I was hungry, you give me no meat. When I was naked, you didn't give me any clothes. And these shall go away on everlasting punishment. All liars on their way to hell. All deceivers on their way to hell. All gamblers on their way to hell. If the drunkard dies and goes to hell, who cares? The man that sold him a drink don't care. All he wanted was the money for the price of the drink. If the dancing woman dies and goes to hell, who cares? Act two, Golden Peacock. For this act, we thought we'd try a little radio experiment. I told a Chicago playwright named Jeff Dorchin about the three boys in our first story today, what they said about sin and their own relative badness in this world. And he created a very brief radio play picking up where they left off. Here's what he came up with. Out call. Me too. Three tens. Full house. Aces and eights. Ooh. What do you got, kid? Four diamonds. You got nothing. See, if you had some where the numbers matched, or, or if they were in order, and, and there were five of them, but that, what you have there, that's nothing. My grandpa used to call that a kangaroo straight. My dad used to call it a Klondike. Klondike wins the game. No, Klondike doesn't win the game. Peter wins the game. Full house wins. I hate you, Peter. I don't blame you. My deal. Straight, five-card draw. Anything wild? No. Yours. Shut up. Ow! Watch it with those cards, man. Sorry. What's your problem today? He has sinned. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, I have. How how did you know? Your eyes. They are the eyes of an accused man. Furtive. Alert. The eyes of a nervous beast who... Once a lover of gambles and jigs and sunlit medals, 
has been driven to nocturnal skulking by the pursuit of a relentless predator. Hey, he's got you there. 10,000 lira. Call. Call. Caleb, do you believe in sin? Hell no. I believe in damnation, though. How, how can you believe in damnation, but not sin? Predestiny. Take me. I was born damned. I'm cowardly, petty, intolerant, lazy, and just generally destructive. I knew I was damned the first time I heard the word. Your Calvinism relieves you of the responsibility for improving yourself. Shut up, kid. What are you doing? It's all right, T.I. Joe. I was strong. Yeah, Pete, the kid can take it. Now give me three. How many, Dondi? Four. You can't have four. The most you can have is three. Okay, I'll take two. And two for the dealer. Five thousand. Call. Call. What do you have? Pair of nines. Dandy? Three onions. Those are spades, not onions. And you're supposed to match the numbers, not the suit, you little spaghetti sucker. I have a Klondike. You have garbage. How many times do we have to go through this? It's like rolling a boulder up a hill just to have it roll back down again over and over and over. I will not make the mistake again, Sahib. Don't call me Sahib. Peter, what do you have? Pair of jacks. All right. Pair of jacks takes it. Alright. Seven card stud poker, one eyed royalty, red deuces, nines, and all odd numbered clubs are wild. What do you, uh, what do you guys think the worst sin is? Murder? Betrayal. Huh. What, why do you say that? At the center of the ninth and innermost frozen circle of hell, Lucifer devours Judas eternally. Really? That's what they say. One million lire. I'll see that. And raise you one. Call. I'm there. What do you got? Seven aces. Me too. So do I. Alright, so there are a few too many wild cards. Let's hold the pot over. Okay. Finger. Huh? Uh, oh, sure. Leave it over. Do you think a sin is worse if, say you, for example, you betray somebody? Then suppose you don't feel any remorse. Does that make it worse? Of course. Gentlemen, the game is Chicago low. Ace, no face, sevens. Follow the queen. Uh, wait a second, Dandy. Caleb. Could I talk to you alone for a second? Over there by the window? Sure, Pete. I will go fetch us some delicious ginger ale. Good idea. <laughs> what is it, Pete? Think the kid's trying to hustle us? No. I, I just wanted to talk, that's all. What's the matter? Nothing. I'm just... Uh, I'm afraid of going to hell. Why? Why? I... I just don't think I'm a very good person. Well, that's ridiculous, Pete. You're a very nice guy. You write letters. I never write letters. Yeah, but... What if you do something bad? How bad does it have to be? I mean, if... Do you have to... If you feel like it's bad enough to damn you, are you damned? I mean, if you don't feel any remorse... Is that it? 
you betrayed somebody and they didn't feel any remorse? Is, is that what all those pregnant pauses during the poker banner were about? Well... How can you say you don't have any remorse when you're practically tearing your hair out worrying about going to hell? But being afraid of punishment isn't the same as remorse. Remorse is truly feeling apologetic for what you've done, not just worrying about being punished for it. And you don't feel sorry at all? No. Even though you recognize that what you did was wrong? Hmm, that's right. You know, Pete, you're a very complex guy. Thank you. They went to see Inasib. They did Inasib. They went to see in spite of all their friends could say on a winter's morn on a stormy day in a sieve they went to see Dondi, what's with the old lady? Jesse Gansmok is causing her to recite the jumblies by Edward Lear. Well, shut her up, will you? I can hardly hear myself think. Shut up, Grandmother! I mean, what am I doing here? Who are these strange people? I don't remember deciding to come to Italy. What am I doing in Italy? Maybe to see the Pope? Just last week I was in France, in Rouen, the town where Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. And I was visiting the tower where she was held before her execution. And I was thinking about writing a letter, you know, apologizing. A letter apologizing to the... the injured party. I was looking down from the highest window in the tower. And just how you do... you know, you try to tap into the place in yourself where you have truly apologetic feelings. Because you want to be sincere. You don't want the letter to sound phony. Except I realized... I discovered that there was no such place in myself. That where that place should have been, there was just an empty hole. And it was frightening. It was like staring into the abyss. Go see the Pope. Ask for absolution. But you have to be repentant. I'm not repentant. You could just act repentant. That's what ritual is all about, going through the motions. No. I'd have to be truly sorry in my heart, or it wouldn't save me. That is a very rigid attitude. What do you mean? I can't just pretend to have remorse. You haven't even tried. I mean, the Pope's a very nearsighted, distracted old man. If you buried your face in your hands and pretended to sob, I'm sure he'd buy it. It's not a question of fooling the Pope. You know, I'm starting to think that you don't really want to help yourself. How did I get here? Why are we playing poker in Italy with a demonic little boy whose grandmother is dying in the next room? What was that? A peacock. Huh. What's that a symbol of? Pride. Look, there it is, in the middle of the cemetery. It's golden. A golden peacock in the middle of a graveyard. I wonder what it means. My advice is that you come up with the most positive interpretation you can. What the game is, you little pistachio masher. Who dealt this mess? Don't give me that bluffing baloney. You got a possible straight flush in onions. Do not mention onions, Saeed. My grandfather was killed by El Duce. Don't call me Saeed. Talk is cheap, gentlemen. Two million lira. Wow. 
Well, The Golden Peacock was written by Jeff Dorchin. Jeff also played Caleb. Peter Handler played Lisa. Lisa Stoddard played Dondi and played the dying grandmother. Jeff Dorchin has a new play here in Chicago called Arrogant Living. How bad is this relationship? Well, most of us has probably been in some relationship where it got to the point where, you know, you just had to look at it and say, all right, here are the things between us that are good. These are the other things that are bad, not so good. Is this relationship bad enough that the two of us should call it quits? Is it bad enough to count? Now, on dates, it's different. On a date, things can be going well and then suddenly turn around on a dime. In one sentence, it can go from good to bad. The other person says one thing and you just think suddenly, oh... Oh, this is going nowhere. This experience is so common that you can just walk up to somebody on the street and they'll tell you one of these stories. I should have known the relationship was doomed when on the first date, he did order an amazing bottle of wine, so I was excited about that. But then when it got time to start with appetizers, he ordered the Aspergas and Shrooms. And that's when I found out that he couldn't just talk like a normal person. Everything... Aspergas is asparagus. Shrooms was mushrooms. He was never at home. He was at his hacienda. <laughs> and if he wanted to go get a drink, it would be a cockatiel. Enough said, I think. Well, I was on a date, and I was, went to dinner, and me and the, this girl were talking over dinner, and she asked me how, you know, my family was. I said that uh, my older sister was married and just had a kid, and then uh, I mentioned that my, you know, my parents, my sister weren't getting along too well because she didn't get the kid baptized, and and then she said, "Well, why not? She doesn't. Your sister realize that your kid is going to burn in the fires of hell if she doesn't get her kid baptized," and that kind of told me that that maybe this isn't going to work out too well. The only thing that really bothered me is when every time it's time to go out on a date, and at the end of the day she asks, are you paying for it? And that's it. <laughs> so I'm sitting, so we're sitting at the bar, and, you know, we're having drinks, blah, 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 and we're kind of going over each other's history, what do you do? And they asked me what I did before I have my job now, and, um... And I said, oh, well, you know, I, I worked in Berkeley. I worked at one of these kind of lefty research institutes, and I wrote, pap I wrote papers for them. And he's like, lefty? You mean left-handed? And I was like, check. Talking very much. A lot, of, a lot of conversation, and you're not involved. You know, a lot of their life story, and you didn't ask for it, you know. Right, I mean, so much conversation where it just be like, it's like the Charlie Brown, you know, it's just to a point it just gets him. What did you say? Oh, basically that's it. This guy calls and um, 
He comes to pick me up. He was very nice, I have to say. I told him that I didn't know anything about Cincinnati, and he, like, brought this architectural guide. We drove around, and he showed me all of these historic landmark buildings that were very beautiful. And then he started driving around in these other neighborhoods and saying, well, I used to own that building, uh, but I sold it. And I didn't I didn't really know what to say. I mean you're on a first date with someone, you don't really want to find out about like their land holdings and all that. So I just sort of was polite, nodding and we were driving around and he points out another building. Well, we own that one and oh now we own this one over here and a lot of them were like substandard housing. And then we like drove by this other apartment complex and he said, Yeah, we had to put someone out of their apartment in that building on Christmas Eve. It was terrible. And I realized he was a slumlord. We sit down to eat. And um, because of the way my kitchen is, we are eating in the living room. Because of the way my living room is, we're eating on the floor. And eating, eating, everything's going fine, I think. And uh, midway through dinner, she drops her fork on her plate. This clank. And I look up, and I'm wondering if something's gone wrong. And she says, why haven't you kissed me yet? So I kiss. And we kiss, kiss, kiss. And the kissing is going fine. There's no problem with kissing. Ten minutes into the kissing, again, pulls back, starts to cry. And she says, don't you think it's sad that everyone else could fall in love and people like us just can't? Well, what do you do at that point? Act four, how bad is that movie? Well, in this program in which we ask the question, how bad is bad enough to count, we offer this now as a public service to people everywhere who disagree about movies. So many movies are mediocre that the entire question of movies is just ripe for how bad is bad enough to count. So many movies seem to straddle or even obliterate the line between good and bad. We heard about a guy who had a simple, portable system to divide the wheat from the chaff. This test was invented by one Howard Rabinowitz of San Francisco, not a professional movie critic. He says to determine whether a movie is in fact good, you simply have to ask the question, Is it better or worse than The Truth About Cats or Dogs? Because I I kind of take The Truth About Cats and Dogs as the kind of absolute midpoint. That is the midpoint between good and bad, great and unwatchable. The Truth About Cats and Dogs, you may recall, is the mediocre romantic comedy in which Janine Garofalo is good, Uma Thurman is bad, and a dog is on roller skates. It stands at the crossroads. It stands at the dividing line. And it's easy to use. Witness a typical movie-going night for Howard and his boyfriend. We saw Chasing Amy, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people have liked and have said good things about, and we, we definitely agreed that it it paled in comparison to Truth About Cats and Dogs, which doesn't doesn't really bode well for the movie. Let me just run a, a couple of uh, of recent movies by you and ask how they rate on the Truth About Cats and Dogs scale. L.A. Confidential. Have you seen it? I have. Mm-hmm. I have. Um, I I think it's definitely above uh, above the the Truth About Cats and Dogs line. Far above. Well, th- it it might be helpful. To, to say, you know, if Truth About Cats and Dogs is the midpoint, 
Right. Then there's a tier of about, I mean, I don't want to get too specific, but say 37.5% of the rest of the movies that are made are in that realm of, of good, you know, pretty good to good to very good. And I would say it falls on that shelf. It doesn't, it doesn't climb above into the kind of great movies. Uh, another, another recent movie, In the Company of Man? Yeah, I, uh, I would have to put that, you know, just slightly above Truth About Cats and Dogs, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, if they had, you know, they had, had one or two animals on roller skates, it could have been a different story. <laughs> Friends, you heard it here first. Things that can make our lives easier. The metric system, Esperanto. The truth about cats and dogs. Well, coming up, one man's wild, wild west, Catholics and their special problems, and does absolute power corrupt absolutely? That's in a minute for Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, How Bad is Bad Enough to Count. Before we go any further, I'd like to just make the case that Catholics have a special burden when it comes to this question. Oh, my God, yes. I've always loved how, how like Protestants can go sashay through life, not really you know, wanting to know whether something is really, really a big sin or just a little sin. This is Jim Nelson, who was raised outside of Washington, D.C., where he attended DeMatha Catholic School for Boys, where he remembers many discussions in religion class over the difference between big sins and little sins. In 11th grade, for example, a heated and surprisingly ambiguous discussion over how bad is masturbation. Church doctrine, he was told, said it was a cardinal sin, meaning you'd go to hell for that. But the living church, his teacher said, was much more lenient, perhaps current theologian said it was just a venial sin, meaning bad, very bad, of course, but you won't actually go to hell. The ambiguity drove Jim crazy. Which was it? Which was it, he says. He just had to know. He can still get worked up over it. And if it isn't a cardinal sin, and if nobody, if none of the, tr- no, n- none of the priests believe that it is a cardinal sin, then let's update the records. You know what I mean? Yeah, let's get everything in order. Let's just get everything in order. Let's be on the same page. Let's get organized here, fellas. Exactly. (laughs) 
looking back, what, what do you make of the the entire endeavor of this, of trying to define, well, okay, here's the line. You know, here's the line that, that, that it gets you into hell. <laughs> I think it still sticks with me. That's the, that's the hard part about it. Is really? That, yeah. And this is the vexing thing, he says, that although he no longer is a practicing Catholic, he no longer believes in heaven and hell, he still finds himself asking, how bad is this? Cardinal sin? Venial sin? Is this bad enough to count? For instance, just last week, talking his way out of jury duty. Big sin or little sin? Not responding to email within 24 hours. Little sin, he says, but big enough that he lies to the people who write him the email, which, of course, is a big sin, but he figures not as big and not as bad as hurting the people's feelings by not responding quickly. Then there's the whole returning phone calls thing. Returning them right away. If you don't return them right away, is that a sin? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. It's more like even just screening phone calls I go through that because... Um, you worry I, I kind of feel... that you might be sinning by screening phone calls? Well, because when, when somebody calls you, I feel like it's an honesty thing that if you're there, you should pick up. And I lately have been, have been not answering and I, I just, you know, screen the phone calls. And it's a, it's a little bit of a moral quandary for me. I talked it over with a, a couple of friends who suggested a compromise. What's which the compromise? Was to turn the volume down <laughs> so that I can't hear. <laughs> so I don't know who's calling me. I'm actually not being forced to decide whether I should answer the phone or not. So uh, I'm at peace with myself again. Jim Nelson in New York City. Act five, creating your own moral code. Eli had no problem deciding how bad is bad enough to count. Unfortunately for him, federal officials did not agree with his judgment about good and bad. And they threw him and his friends in prison for what they did as computer hackers. Did he learn a lesson from his time in the big house? It was, uh, <laughs> it was so fun. I, I, I have to say I had fun. It was a good experience, and I, I don't regret going there, actually. I think a lot of people are going to hear this and feel a certain uh, horror. They're going to feel like, well, you know, people should be punished. Oh, yeah, what I did was a bad thing, and I don't suggest anybody else do it because that would be wrong. And... I don't do anything illegal anymore. <laughs> well, we started today's program with three aspiring computer hackers who feared hell. This is the story of an accomplished computer hacker who does not fear hell. Starting in the mid-1980s, Eli was a member of a crew of computer hackers called M.O.D. In the crew and online, Eli was known as Acid Freak. That's Freak, P-H-R-E-A-K. Journalists from The Village Voice and Esquire magazine documented just how much M.O.D. was able to do. It is entirely possible that no group of American hackers before or since has ever gotten this far in breaking into other people's computers. They infiltrated dozens of businesses and government networks. At one point, the um, reporters from Esquire asked them to demonstrate their skills by breaking into the White House computer system, and then they watched them do it. But M.O.D.'s real love 
was not actually um, breaking into stuff like the White House. What they loved was trying to figure out the biggest, most sophisticated, complicated computer system in the world, which is the phone system. They hacked their way into the highest level computers that run the phone system for New York and New England, meaning they had the power to assign any services to any phone, listen to any phone, disconnect or create accounts, get unlisted phone numbers, or bring the whole phone system down. Eli served six months in a minimum security prison and six months on home confinement. This interview was recorded a few years ago while he was still on home confinement in his parents' house in Queens. The, the prison I had gone to was very relaxed. It was more like a fame camp. People who were known and people who were involved in, in high-profile cases went there. That's what it was. I had, um, had a couple of really good friends there. Across from me, on the other side of my room, was a man they used to call the Condo King. And uh, he lived in Massachusetts in a, in a castle that was probably worth $5 million and had butlers and Rolls Royces and you know this and that. It was a real castle and right on the water. And he taught me about real estate, which was the funny thing. So I learned real estate from him. I learned about stocks. You know, I, I learned from the best. And it was like such a great experience. You know, it was like college all over again. The attitude there was that of like camaraderie. Everybody there had, had this one thing in common, and that was that they looked for the shortest way possible to achieve what they wanted to achieve. And they all got there at some point, and they just, you know, felt a stroke of bad luck, I suppose. There were no losers there, that's for sure. You know, everybody there had, uh, had achieved a very high level of success, very well known in whatever they did. You know, I, had, I was friends with, like, all the mobsters there, and you know, they took care of me and stuff because I was from New York and I knew about Little Italy and, and you know, Mulberry. And, and like that, they were just impressed because I was the only hacker in, in this whole compound. As the only hacker, Eli got a lot of job offers in prison. Everything from, you know, obtaining credit cards to changing credit to... Yeah, changing credit was a big thing because uh, I don't know if you know about this, but every time these real estate guys... Uh, get busted, their credit usually goes down the tubes. One big big request I had was to change a lot of uh, credit reports and stuff, but, you know, I didn't do that and didn't take it seriously. I just told them, yeah, it was possible, but, uh, you know, you're not going to get it from me. And, you know, there's a lot of mobsters who wanted me to set up phone lines for them that couldn't be detected by the police and, and things like that. And again, well, it's possible, but I can't do that for you, you know. But then again, if you were to ask me that and I was to do it, I wouldn't tell you anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a question that's hard to answer, you know. Come into my domain. Uh, this is my room. As you can see, it's a typical teenager room. Well, sort of typical. The bedroom he lived in during his six-month home confinement was tiny. Barely enough space for a bed, a desk, and a bookshelf. There was a TV and a VCR. Two computers. He, like, flipped on the stereo. I don't know. I, I guess I got kind of a lot of equipment around here. I've got a fax machine here. You know, I've got, in my room, I've got five phone lines. i got a two-line phone, but I've got everything else connected to computers or a fax. I've got 
three modems lying around. I've got uh, my computer is always on. They were cheesy kung fu movies on video. Only Lai's CD player, old school rap, Nine Inch Nails, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix. Finally, he said, let me show you the good stuff. And he pulled out Xeroxes of old spiral notebooks. <clears throat> what was seized from me, but they had to return back to me. It was my evidence examination report by the United States Secret Service, subject acid freak. These notes have basically all the systems I got into, like, Look, I have little sketches and diagrams of how things work, different protocols and networks, definitions. See, a lot of the stuff was really good. I had stuff outside the country. NASA. The something defense? What is it? Government defense. Government defense. Yeah, that's a Washington number. McDonald's. Since I had Telenet, I had McDonald's accounts. If you're a McDonald's employee, I could raise your, your pay. So that way you get like, you know, $15 an hour for like shuffling burgers and stuff. So did you decide just at random to, to help I, someone I out? I didn't do it to anybody. I just wanted to know how. We did this from pay phones. We have a line of pay phones. We get into the computer, first liberate one phone. What liberating meaning? Make it so that you don't need quarters for that pay phone. You just pick up and dial like a regular house phone. So that way we can make endless amount of phone calls without putting quarters. Next step was to get into the network, find a session that was already going, and then knock them off while they were connected, and then sit there watching them. In other words, put us in their place, in the place of the computer they were going to connect to. So next time they try to log in, they would get our computer, and we'd type in login and they'd put in their login account. Then we'd go, password, you know? The password, they'd say, okay, password, and they put their password in, and then we would have, you know, all these things were already encoded in one key, so we could just hit one key, and, you know, it wouldn't look like we were typing it. Login would just appear, whoop, yeah, with password. Login, then we'd hit the password key, and password would come out. And then we'd say, login incorrect, and then disconnect from them, but we already got their login and password, and then when they reconnected, it would be the regular system. So they'd figure, hey, I made a mistake typing it in or something. And that's how we would get an account. It was like, it was funny, you know? You get into things that are good, you start targeting systems that are interesting, and then you start developing a collection. It's like baseball cards. I have NASA, I have, uh, you know, NSA, I've got... Uh, Phone company computers, I've got Mizar, I've got Cosmos, I've got this, I've got that, McDonald Douglas, Marion Marietta, you know, TRW, CVI, TransUnion, what else can I get, you know? You try to get the, like, big names, you know, so you start developing a collection, you know? Then after a while it became fun to, like, look up famous people. Let's look up John Gotti's credit, you know, let's see what he owns. Let's look up uh, Julia Roberts, you know, let's get her home phone number, let's get this guy's home phone number. Phones and stuff, and hooking up. I would drive up to a payphone real quick and do what I had to do and leave really quick. That's where I really got into a movie. You know, I felt like uh, it was like Mission Impossible. Like that whole gang it was like dun 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 dun. And then we would all go out and hook up and everything. It was like, yeah, all right, 
I'm, I'm that black guy who does all this technical stuff. I can get into it. <laughs> and then, let's go, let's go, you know? And I felt like we should have, like, walkie-talkies and headsets and everything and be like, okay, Blue, go, go do your thing on five. Ready? Five, four, three. You're in, you're in. <laughs> it was just amazing after a while. And uh, we were just so excited we were getting all that stuff, and it was just a rush, you know? It was the flow you know once you once you start going you can't stop you know you're just steamrolling one after the other and the flow gets you going and then you're just like yeah we're we rule you know we're it if anything it's striking how little they did with their power over computers it was mostly pranks making someone's phone line ring continuously for hours unstopping, turning an enemy's home phone line into a pay phone line so that when the guy picked up the home phone, it demanded that he deposit a quarter, which, of course, he could not do because it was just a regular phone. It was his home phone. They did call Julia Roberts once. They called Queen Elizabeth, too. But there's an emptiness at the heart of a lot of these stories. Once you've got the Queen Mother on the phone, what do you say? She's like, hello. You know, she's talking to us. And stuff, and we don't know what to say. Hi, we're calling from the United States, and this and that. And she knew what was up. She's like, okay, hello. And then she said goodbye, and that was it. You know, we didn't know what to say. What do you say to Queen Elizabeth? You know, hi, so, uh, you see that movie, uh, True Lies? <laughs> you know, what do you say? You know, it's just like the, the, the fun of it is finding the number. Eli was thrown in prison for a relatively minor offense. It went like this. Some of the members of his crew broke into the computers that list everybody's credit ratings. They copied some credit reports, and they sold that information. Eli was named as a member of this conspiracy. They said, we miss, you know, we abused our power. But we didn't abuse it at all. We did nothing compared to the things that could have been done. You know, what we did was such a small thing and such a larger scheme of things, you know? kind of depressing in a way. I mean, there's so many things we could have done. We could have monitored, uh, you know, Peter Lynch, you know, and what's the next best investment for the day, you know, and, and we'd make millions of dollars, you know, investing or shorting some stock, but uh, we never did, and, you know, now we wonder why. <laughs> We're like, damn, there's so many applications for this kind of stuff. What happened? But then we are like, ah, you know, we were just kids. One time where one of us got um, the Mad Magazine owner's phone number. And at the time, and we called him. At that time, he was going through some rough times or something. And we were, we were calling him for about two weeks. And he was just so goofy. He was kind of crazy. And he was just really stressed or something. And we just kept calling him and calling him. And finally, we started harassing him and harassing him. We, like, make fun of him and laugh at him and call him Alfred E. Newman and, you know, just ridicule him. And then he got so mad at us and we used to keep calling and screwing around with him. And then one day we read in the paper he died, like, the, the day after we had called him. He, pass, he passes away. 
And we're there like, yo, did we kill him? I hope not. But then they said he had like some nervous breakdown and this and that. We're like, oh my God. Oh my God. I, I think we contributed to his, uh, to his demise there. Uh, you better not tell anybody this. But then, you know, we realized that there was probably other factors that contributed to it, not just the kid calling him on the phone, you know. But uh, since then, we stopped, like, doing things like that, because we're like, oh, my God. I don't destroy computers. I don't take them down. I don't delete information that, that you know, shouldn't be deleted. I don't... I... I think there's something morally wrong if you affect a person personally and it's not only his computer life but his personal life is you know it's right to make a living I think that's wrong it's, it's just a it's, it's a question of morality one thing about the computer world is that it's still relatively new and hacking is still relatively new so people in this world are still running across situations where no rules have been set about what's right and what's wrong. And in that situation, people have to create their own moral code. Eli's crew had its own particular code of behavior. For example, unlike most hackers, his crew did not share its information with other hackers. We had complete control over certain networks. We could have any system we wanted on that network. Any host was ours. But you don't, you still you don't, you don't let it get out to other hacking groups and other hackers because... If they don't know how to use it, they don't understand the power of it all, you know, you, you can't trust them. It's too much power for some people. Basically, it's like having a gun. It's, let's say it's the Wild West. You take it upon yourself to, take, to have a gun. You're responsible for it. If you give that to someone, you're responsible for that, so you don't give it out. If you want to shoot somebody's sister, you know, somebody's wife or something, you know, that's upon you. You know, it's all a question of morality in my eyes. And, and if I know something and it's of importance to somebody else, who's to tell me I can't, I can't sell it if I know it, you know? We're not evil people. We're good people at heart. There was a time when me and my friend Ninex Freak, another guy in the group, we found a system that that actually what it did was it you could input a certain series of digits it would take those digits and see if it was a credit card so you could basically hack out credit card numbers just by guessing is this a credit card and it would tell you if it was or not and we found that system finally somebody wrote a program that would automatically do it scan all night and get thousands of, of credit cards and we're like yo this is no good <laughs> like this is this is uh you know what if they start selling credit cards and stuff like, this is no good, so we actually called the FBI and told them about it. I mean, we, we didn't narc on anybody. We didn't say who wrote it or anything. We just said, there's a system. That isn't right. It's open like that. It was, it was just, like, getting ridiculous, you know? So I was like, we got to put it into this. And we did that, and we were like, damn, we can't tell any hacker we did this. They'd be pissed. And we felt like that was right to do, you know? That, that's kind of wrong. In fact, when I was visiting Eli, he was facing a daily question of right and wrong when he came to his own home confinement. The prison system monitored his movements with this electronic device that was riveted to a strap around his ankle. 
The device sent signals to a computer about his whereabouts, and then that computer called another computer at the Department of Corrections, used a phone line to do that. Hacking this computer was pretty easy work. It was clear how to do it. But Eli chose not to do it. He was going straight, he said. Not because he thought hacking was wrong, and not because he was scared of getting caught. He was just tired of hacking. We had lists and lists of computers and no time to do it in. It just got to the point where it was like such a large burden, you know? It's like, oh, man, we got to do this one. Oh, there's another one we got to do. And then it it got to like hundreds and hundreds, and finally it's like not even fun anymore. You like, there's such a rush to get it when you initially get it, but then uh, I think it gets to be boring. Here in Chicago, I've talked to members of big street gangs who've told me the same thing as this. They were quitting the gang, not because they thought it was wrong to be in a gang, or because their pasts were catching up with them. They were quitting because they were just tired of having the same night over and over again, hanging out on the street, seeing the same people, doing the same stuff. That's the thing about being bad. People don't talk about much. It gets boring. I've just burned myself out, I think. I just got to that point when uh, everybody gets burnt out if they have a little too much of everything, you know? Today, three years after that interview, Eli is a manager of information security on Wall Street. Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder. Our senior editor is Paul Tuff. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockon, and consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Emily Hamford, Rachel Howard, and Alex Bloomberg. To buy a cassette of this program, call us at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380. Our email address, radio at well.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who says this about his years before public radio. Oh, yeah, what I did was a bad thing, and I don't suggest anybody else do it, because that would be wrong. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Until then, I dedicate this song to you. I'll take you, dear, anywhere you are, a sinner or saint. Doesn't matter what they say you are, I'll have no complaint. Whether it's foolish or wise, dear, I'll go along trustingly They say the devil's in your eyes, dear But you look like an angel to me PRI Public Radio International